The Life of General Belisarius, Gothic Resurgence in Italy, Part 2. Now, of course, this is before we get Belisarius there, so we just started it last time, so let's continue where we left off. In a council of war, it was resolved by Bessius, John the Sanguinary, and other Byzantine chiefs first to direct their arms against Verona, and afterwards move on Pavia to crush the last remnant of the Goths. They took the field in A.D. 542 at the head of 12,000 men, including the Persian garrison of Ciceronum, lately dispatched by Belisarius from the east. They encamped at nine miles from Verona, where a Goth, appointed to the command of one of the city gates, privately promised to betray his station. The generals determined that, without hazarding the whole army, a detachment should make the doubtful and dangerous attempt, and as every Byzantine officer shrank from this command, it devolved to Adabazes, one of the Persian captives. In the dead of the night, the gate was opened to him, and one hundred chosen soldiers, the city was surprised, and the affrighted Goths escaped by another outlet. But they rallied on a neighboring hill. The breaking of day and the high ground which they occupied enabled them to discern the small number of the enemy. And the Byzantine generals, on their march to support Artabasis, had halted while disputing with each other the partition of the expected spoil. By their delay, the subject of their quarrel was irrecoverably lost to them. The handful of soldiers in Verona were speedily overpowered by the superior force of the Goths and only a few, among them Artabazes himself, preserved their life and liberty by leaping from the walls and breaking through the Gothic ranks. After this inglorious expedition, which served merely to betray their weakness and discord to the enemy, Byzantine generals hastened to repass the Po River and fix their encampment at Fanza. There they were followed by forces of Totila, and it was in vain that Artabazes urged expediency of defending against the Goths the passage of the river. On the approach of the hostile army, this brave Persian again signalized himself above the other Byzantine comrades by accepting a challenge to single combat from a Goth of gigantic stature and experienced skill. The valor of Artabazes prevailed. The barbarian was unhorsed and killed, but an accidental thrust from the lance of his expiring enemy struck the victor with a mortal wound and the loss of this distinguished officer was deeply felt by the Byzantines in the battle which ensued. Animated by the harangue from Tortilla, the Goths advanced to the charge with all their generous boldness which a national cause inspires, while the Byzantines displayed the voluntary cowardice of hirelings, whose pay had been withheld. The engagement was not long undecided. A squadron of 300 barbarians, artfully posted by Totila in ambush, suddenly appeared in the rear of the imperial forces and was magnified by the terrors in the second Gothic army. The chiefs and subalterns fled in disorder from the field. Many prisoners were made in the pursuit and all the Byzantine standards taken, a disgrace which, according to Procopius, had never befallen the Romans on any previous occasion. The result of the Battle of Fanzo was total dispersion of the Byzantine troops. Each of the eleven generals led his squadron under his personal command to the shelter of some different fortress, so that the whole of Italy now lay open and exposed to Totila. With many cities to reduce but no army to encounter, the victorious monarch was not slow in availing himself of the advantages which his merit and good fortune had acquired. While he himself reduced the cities of Pissarro and Fano, a share of his forces were dispatched to form the siege of Florence, and might have succeeded in this enterprise had not the garrison received a large reinforcement from Ravenna, 
headed by none other than John the Sanguinary. These troops, confiding in their far superior numbers, sallied forth against the barbarians who retreated towards the Apennine and entrenched themselves on a hill near Mugello. Here they repulsed their assailants with loss and, assisted by a false report that the Byzantine chief had fallen, produced a panic rout. The Byzantines of this detachment were scattered, not as lately, party by party, but man by man, and a great number who fell at the hands of the enemy were persuaded to enlist in the Gothic service. This second victory induced Totila to form a project, a bold, adventurous one in appearance, but of which the soundness was shown by the event. Had he attempted the regular siege of the neighboring cities, he would have found them ready for long and perhaps successful resistance. He would have left the open country in possession of the Byzantines and given them leisure to recover from their consternation. He therefore meditated to carry his arms into the farthest part of Italy where no attack was looked for and no defense prepared. In pursuance of this plan, he marched through Amelia and Picenum and having reduced the forts of Cecina and Petra in his ways, passed the Tiber and advanced in the Campania. The city of Benvenuto, though a place of strength, yielded to his unforeseen attack, and he raised the ramparts to the ground. From thence he proceeded to Naples, which, as no danger had been apprehended, was garrisoned by only a thousand soldiers, but which possessed in Cologne a firm and faithful governor. This place was invested by Totila in person, but considerable detachments of his army were sent into the adjoining provinces, which from the total one of Byzantine troops they overran with ease. Lucania, Brutium, the Apulians, and the Calabrians were successfully subdued, and almost the whole of southern Italy once more acknowledged the Goths as sovereigns, while in another quarter the fort of Cume enriched them with its hordes of treasure. Some ladies of senatorial rank who had been surprised in their companion villas were sent back to their husbands without ransom, and the generous or polite forbearance of Totila was rewarded by his growing popularity. The progress of the Gothic monarch filled the Byzantine court with just alarm. Troops were hastily collected and dispatched. The supreme command in Italy, with the title of Praetorium Perfect, was bestowed on Maximus, a senator, not merely ignorant of war, but deficient in the first and most common requisite of a soldier, personal courage. He had left Constantinople at the head of a formidable fleet, and a large body of Thracian and Illyrian soldiers together with some Hunnish horse cavalry. Yet, instead of proceeding at once to the object of his expedition, he timidly lingered on the coast of Epirus. Demetrius, one of his officers, landed with a handful of men in Sicily, where he learned that the garrison of Naples was reduced to extreme distress and required immediate help. For this purpose, he gathered together as many vessels as possible from every port in the island, and it appears that Totila, appraised of the large number of these ships, and not aware of how few soldiers were, they, were manned by them, would not in all likelihood have ventured to attack them had they steered directly for the Bay of Naples. Instead of such a judicious boldness, Demetrius, like most weak men, mistook delay for prudence, and sailed first to Porto, at the mouth of the Tiber, where he hoped to obtain some reinforcements. But the imperial troops in Italy were disheartened by their late defeats and refused to quit the protection of their ramparts. The Byzantine officer was compelled to proceed alone when the favorable moment for action had already passed. Totila had discovered the real weakness of the convoy and suddenly assailed it with some light brigantines as it lay at anchor near the coast. A few soldiers and Demetrius himself escaped by having at the first onset betaken themselves to their boats. 
but all the ships fell into the hands of the, of the Goths, and all the Byzantines on board were either killed or made prisoners. Among the latter was Aethrope, a civil governor of Naples, who had secretly traveled to Porto in order to hasten the expected supplies, and who, in the earlier stage of the siege, had imprudently manifested his loyalty to the emperor by taunts and invectives against the Gothic invader. For these he was destined to undergo a rigorous punishment. The vindictive barbarian commanded his hands and tongue to be cut off and then restored the mutilated wretch to freedom. So we have a second round of very poor showing by the Byzantines, but Belisarius still isn't in Italy. Now the sources for this, The Wars of Justinian by Procopius, Short History of Byzantium by Norwich, Byzantine Art of War by Decker, Life of Belisarius by Mahome. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, Check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.